Helen Pye, Head of Engagement at Snowdonia National Park, and I'll be your host for this month's podcast. This is the first episode in a very special two-part series where we chat to colleagues in national parks from around the world. I'll be exploring everything from how the impacts of the pandemic have affected people to the most rewarding and challenging parts of caring for our national parks. In this series and in the first part, I'll be talking to three guests from three incredible national parks. Stefania from Vatnajökull National Park in Iceland, Ranger Dean from Hawaii Volcanoes National Park and Chris Patton, who works for South Africa National Parks. My first guest, Stefania, is the Chief Ranger uh, Vatnajuk National Park, which is one of the three national parks in Iceland. Stefania, thanks so much for chatting to us today. It's so lovely to meet you. Um, how have things been in Iceland? How have things been during the pandemic for you? Uh, yeah, very slow, very different. Uh, I work in the south area of Iceland and the national park, so we get quite a lot of tourists and um it's starting to pick up again. We can feel it every day. It's like different every day, more tourists. So it's nice. It was nice to have a break, but it's it's nice to have the tourists back. And was it um, similar last year? Did you have a lot of tourists last year as well? Mm, we had mainly just Icelandic tourists. So people were just traveling inside the country. We had a few um uh, foreigners, but it was mainly just Icelandic people traveling around the country. So I'm presuming that a lot of the visitors that do normally come to the national park, they, they tend to come from abroad, do they? Yes. When you... um, yeah, US is big one. Uh, a lot of countries from Asia during the winter time for the um, ice cave tours and northern lights. Uh, but mainly it's been like the US, France, Spain. Great. And tell us a bit about your national park. You you just snuck in there ice cave tours, which sound amazing. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to hear a bit about, you know, when was uh, the national park established and what makes the area so special? You know, the ice cave tours, the, the northern lights. Mm-hmm. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, uh, so it was established in 2008, uh, but previously there was a national park in Skaftavet, which was established in 67, and also in Jökulsárgljúfur, which is in the north. So Skaftavet is in the south, and uh, Jökulsárgljúfur is in the north, and that was established in 1973. Um, and then it's like the whole uh, ice cap inside the national park. Uh, and then extensive areas around that. Um, and it was established for its diverse uh, nature, fire and ice. So we have a lot of volcanoes um, and we also have, of course, the glacier itself, where they do ice cave tours, glacier walks. Uh, and then we have the northern lights during the winter time. So I imagine um, the role as chief ranger is is quite an interesting one. You know, in um, Snowdonia National Park, our re- rangers are reporting on um, the snow on the highest summit, Snowden mm-hmm. or Edwitha, um during the winter. But uh, we we don't have um, any glaciers or or we definitely don't have any volcanoes. So so tell us a bit about your role. Um, you know, how did you become chief ranger and mm-hmm. what does your work entail day to day? Um, so I 
uh, I've been working for the National Park for 10 years, so since 2011. Uh, it was mainly just the summer job, so I came for the sum summer. Uh, I worked in Skaftafell. And then in 2018, I was hired full time as the chief ranger in Skaftafell. Uh, and then uh, I moved stations to Hep, which is also in the same like area. Uh, and then I'm the chief ranger here now. Um, yeah, I can't remember the other question. <laughs> um, I guess what does the work entail day, day yeah. to day really? Um, I would consider myself more of like a shift manager than like the basic chief ranger. Uh, I work mainly in the office, like a eight to four job. Uh, I uh, do the social media for the national park. I uh, manage the shifts um, and I just uh, we have rangers during the summer. So I I take care of that aspect um, for the area. You have a really broad um, range of, of um, responsibilities and, and how many people you, you said that in the summer you kind of have more rangers coming in. Sort of how mm -hmm. many staff do you have working for the National Park seasonally and, and, and during the winter? Yeah, uh, so I think there's a, there are about 30 uh, staff that are hired all year round. But then in the summertime for the whole National Park, it's uh, about 100, something like that. Uh, we have three rangers here in my area, uh, but the biggest area um, is Skaftafell and they have like 20 rangers, something like that. And what does the work of those rangers involve during that season? Uh, maintaining tra maintaining the trails mostly, uh, fix fixing the trails, um, doing you know plucking the lupin. Do you know the lupin, the flower? It's like the Alaskan lupin, so it's like a very aggressive plant that we try to um, keep um, a bay for for the area. So it's very diverse. Uh, in Skaftafell, they have the campground as well, so they uh, maintain that as well. Yeah, so I guess um, similar to our rangers, really. So you're doing some work on managing the impacts of visitors and some work on kind of conservation. So invasive species work, I guess, in Snowdonia, we, you know, we, uh, some of the teams do a lot of work with um, controlling rhododendron, for example. Yeah, um, that's really interesting. So so what do you love most about the role that you do? Um, I just love the how the work is very different from day to day. Uh, I do work in an office, so it's uh, a little bit more mundane than if I were to work on the field. But when I was working, like, for example, in Skaftavet, um you couldn't really plan the day. For You kind of had like a, a plan, but it never worked out that way. And I, I loved that. And I love working with people and and telling people about the glaciers and and educating them about the the climatic changes, for example. Fantastic. And, um, you know, there's there's great parts to, to every job, isn't there? But there's also mm -hmm. really difficult parts. What, what would you say is the hardest part of your job? Um, I would say it would be um, how busy we get during the summertime. It can get really draining. Uh, especially during like July and August. Uh, yeah, it gets way too busy during those months. What sort of visitor numbers are, are you getting there? Do you monitor how many people that you have? Yes, uh, we have. Uh, we monitor it in the visitor center itself and also uh, a little bit outside of the uh, parks. For example, in Skaftavet, we have a, a monitor the numbers uh, via vehicles. So and then we divide the numbers by some, uh, I don't know, by some number that I'm not familiar with. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we were seeing like on the most days that it went like in 2014, we had like 4,000, 5,000 per day. Uh, and it was kind of the same every year since then. So it kind of hit like a high 
and it's been quite stable. Uh, instead, the winters have become more popular as well. Hmm. Sounds similar to um, what we're experiencing, really, and the, um, the the winters or what used to be the quieter seasons are, are mm -hmm. becoming more popular. Yeah. And and I guess that's one of the biggest challenges for us now as well. It certainly is, is um, managing people and managing visitors and managing trying to manage their impact on on the national park and, and the community communities that live in Snowdonia as well, um, because I, I'm not sure um, about you, but in Snowdonia, people live and work in the national park. Is, is that the same for you? Yes, uh, in Skaftafell they do. Uh, in Hub, this is just like a small town, so I just live in the small town and the the national park is a little bit from uh, uh, outside of Hub. Uh, but yeah, it's it's been challenging, like uh, I don't know, finding the balance between winter and summer because, yeah, like you said, it was quite nice getting those quiet months in um, October to March. But now we kind of have it like a staple. We don't get the dip, dip as fast or as low as we did. Which I'm sure takes a, a lot more resource and time and, and energy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me, what's your favourite place in the national park? Uh, I haven't visited all of the national park because it's it's like 14% of the country, so it's quite <laughs> big. <laughs> so uh, uh, and especially those like highland areas, they're not accessible during winter time. So uh, I haven't visited all of the national park, but I I do love the north. Uh, I did visit that last year. Um, it's very, um, very beautiful. Uh, but uh, Skaftavet has a very special place in my heart. I lived there and um, yeah, I love it there. Oh, it's definitely making me want to come and visit. It sounds yeah. absolutely incredible. Yeah, <laughs> uh, one day we'll be able to. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Yeah, uh, I'm sure I'm sure that time will come. Um, we're doing a lot of work here in Snowdonia at the minute. Uh, on engaging visitors on the things that make Snowdonia National Park special and trying to encourage people to help us protect the area when they're yeah. visiting. Is there mm. any messages that you have for people who are coming to visit your area? You know, what should they know about the place before coming? Anything people mm. should or shouldn't do when they're there? Um, I would always recommend people that are visiting the national park or just Iceland in general to check the the weather and the road conditions uh, especially in my area it's uh, the wind can get quite um, aggressive so I would suggest that people check that before traveling uh, and I also would like to um, encourage people to um, go on a guided trip on the glacier because we do have a problem of um, people going on the glacier without the proper equipment uh, and the proper experience and it's it's more it's nicer to have like a guide to tell you more about the area and the glaciers and they have the a proper uh, experience to go on the glacier so yeah thank you stefania um it's been such a pleasure to speak to you and good luck with the rest of the year and all the great work you're doing to look after what sounds like an absolutely incredible part of the world. It's been so lovely to speak to you and hopefully we'll we'll catch you again soon. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. My second guest is Ranger Dean. He is a ranger at Hawaii Volcanoes National Park and he has a background in conservation biology. Good evening and and I guess good morning as well because it's eight o'clock in the morning with you and it's half past seven at night here. Yes, thank you so much. It is just a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to greet you a little with a little Hawaiian, so enjoy the language. It's beautiful and melodic. O Dean William Gallagher Ko'u Inoa, O Hawaii Ku'u Mokupuni, O Pennsylvania North America Ku'u Onehanao, O Kilauea Ku'u Mauna, Aloha Kako. Oh, that was absolutely beautiful. It's so lovely hearing different languages and um, 
In Welsh, uh, good evening is Noswaitha and good morning is Boreda. So Boreda, Ranger Dean. <laughs> <laughs> Mahalo, thank you so much. And thank you for chatting to us today. It's really lovely to meet you. Um, tell us, how have things been in Hawaii? Have things been during the pandemic for you? So uh, in some ways good, because Hawaii is probably the most remote archipelago in the world, we're over 2,400 miles from the nearest landmass, um, our incident of COVID-19 was actually very low. So it was relatively easy for us to keep those numbers down. But it was also very hard on uh, many of us because Hawaii is a very um, it is a very cosmopolitan place with folks from all over the world coming to visit this amazing place and not having that connection anymore uh, made us feel somewhat isolated. So I guess maybe made some people happy, but for folks like me uh, working here, it seemed like a big part of our Hawaiian family was missing. Yeah, I could imagine that was um, quite a challenge. What, what sort of visitor numbers would you have on a, a normal year, would you say? So in a very good year, well, like a lot would be close to 1.5 to 2 million visitors a year for our park. And that um, really represents a huge cross-section of human society. We have folks from the Asian side, right? So they're visiting from Japan, China, South Korea, um, the Philippines. And then we have folks from North America. And then we have folks from Europe that are willing to brave the uh, 24 hours of flying to, to get here. But uh, everyone seems to connect. Uh, one of the absolute highlights of my job is when we have a good full-blown eruption going from a volcano like Kilauea, and everybody's gathered out back um, at one of the overlooks after dark. The lava lake is bubbling in front of everyone and a hush falls across the whole crowd as it gets darker and the glow gets brighter. And if you're if you're very quiet, you can hear languages from all over the world being spoken, almost as though here in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, the human family decided to hold a reunion. Um, and I just love that. I, I absolutely love the, the way that that this wonderful, magical landscape brings people together. Oh, it sounds quite in incredible. Um, and it sort of reminds me a bit. You were talking about the the kind of hearing the different languages. And and I guess uh, that's, you know, Erwithfar, our highest mountain in the National Park. Um, it's actually I think it's it's been formed from an ancient volcano. So there's some kind of similarities there. And uh, People were observing during the pandemic when we had some real lockdowns and the, and the National Park was really only accessible to, to local people. And the majority of uh, or over 60 percent of the population in North Wales are, are first language Welsh speakers. So people were commenting on how all of a sudden the the mountain kind of turned to lots of Welsh speakers and hearing kind of Welsh accents all over the mountain. Whereas, like you say, normally it would be kind of, you know, from all over the country and all over the world. So it's, it's really interesting for us. So volcanoes, amazing. Tell us a bit more about your national park. And also, when was it established? You know, obviously, the volcanoes are the kind of big thing that, that make, it, make it pretty special. Yes, it's kind of in the name, right? So, yeah, you're right. It was established August 1st, 1916. Um, incidentally, the same year that the National Park Service was established as an agency in the U.S., um, we became a UNESCO-recognized World Heritage Site in 1987, but just prior to that, an International Biosphere Reserve in 1980. And those designations are really important because in 1916, People were looking at this landscape all around us, and they realized there was a very real potential that it was going to be divided up and sold off as cattle ranches and as other development. And some very forward-thinking individuals said, hey, we need to protect this for future generations to enjoy in perpetuity. For Native Hawaiian people, it's on a deeper level. These are sacred landscapes. These are wahikapu. They're landscapes that connect them to their ancestors. They're landscapes that connect them to the primal forces of Earth and geology. Um, every component of the land is living here. Um, just a little side story that gets to the heart of why you would establish this as a national park. 
sometimes they get the pleasure of teaching biology classes to uh, local students. And I was explaining what things are living and what things are not living, that living things breathe, they um, protect themselves, they reproduce. And so I pointed out the tree and I said, is it living or not living? And all the young students said, um, living. And I said, how about my car? And they said, not living. And I picked up a rock and I deliberately used the Hawaiian word. I said, pohaku. And all the Hawaiian kids to a, to a child said, living because um, it breathes, you can go to the steam vents and see them steaming, it reproduces, you can see lava flowing. All of the local kids that lived here but were not born here all said not living. So I think uh, as a national park, protecting this active volcanism, sacred landscape and a living landscape as well as living culture was really, really important. And I'm so glad they did. Um, over the years, the park has grown. It's now uh, just over 333,000 acres. I think that works out to be about 135 hectares, if, that, if that's what you guys are using. Um, just to put it into perspective, that's roughly the size of the island of Oahu, which is where Honolulu is located, and Waikiki, and Diamond Head, and Pearl Harbor, all the things that people are familiar with Hawaii, you could fit inside the national park. Uh, so it's quite, it's quite wonderful that it was protected. And that's really interesting to hear how, uh, I guess the way that you talk about um, local communities, that seems to be one, one of the elements that actually makes the National Park what it is, which is very similar to Snowdonia for us. You know, the, it, it's not just about the landscape and, and the biodiversity, but the people who live here and their connection to the landscape and their history and culture is part of what makes the area special. So it, it sounds quite similar in that sense. We do share that. Yeah. As I was researching for this podcast, I was reading up on Snowdonia and I thought about how many parallels there are, that uh, even though we seem a world away, we still share so many common connections. Yeah, I think um, I see many Native Hawaiian cultural practitioners come into the park and it's their chance to reconnect with the landscape. And it helps me to see my role as a steward, that I'm here to protect these sacred landscapes and to preserve them. Even though my background is biology, my connection is to many of the ancient Hawaiian seabirds that, you know, they were here long before the first humans stepped off of a canoe. But I really like to see all of that preserved in one beautiful package. And do you find um, it sometimes a challenge? You know, I'm asking these questions because it's something sometimes we experience. Do you find it a challenge that um, visitors to the National Park come maybe just for the scenery and, and don't have that sense of kind of all of the other cultural elements that make the area special? You're absolutely correct. Um, I don't hold that against them. Some, some people do. I just feel like uh, I had a great mentor uh, when I first came aboard with the National Park Service. He was a ranger named Jim Gale, and he was always encouraging me with three concepts to read, match, lead, that I would read the audience, I would meet them where they're at, and then I would lead them. And the idea behind that was people don't know what they don't know. You know, they come here and may believe Hawaii is all beaches and palm trees, and that they're going to come here and listen to ukulele music and sit their Mai Tai. And they may not be aware that they're standing on some sacred landscape and that part of what they're doing might be viewed as disrespectful. So I, I just meet them where they're at. I don't do scoldings. I just let them know what they're seeing and why it's special. And I mean, without fail, um, Helen, these people are very compliant. They're very understanding. They say, oh, I didn't know and they're, they're ready to be part of the story. So that's what I've tried to do is just, um, I guess it's educating people, but it's more than that. It's, it's communicating with them on their level. You find the common ground. Do you have a place that you call home? And they say, yes. Do you have a place that you consider more special than other places? Yes. So we, we can talk about that. And I feel like overall, people are really appreciative of that. It, it doesn't push people away. It actually makes them feel like where they've come to is more special. That's that's really lovely to hear. And, and it sounds like, you know, a, a, a chunk of your role is, is all about that kind of engaging with visitors who come to the area. And, and like you say, kind of coming with them and, and sort of taking them to, to where you want to go. 
Um, tell us a bit about what your kind of day-to-day work entails. Well, today I'll be doing a ranger-guided program where I'm going to be leading a large group of visitors out to an overlook. So we'll be perched right on the rim of the top of Kilauea's main volcano, and we'll be looking straight off the edge. And I deliberately lead them on a trail through the forest because they don't get the view until right at the last second. And then there's this, da-da! And then I share with them, the, the name of this particular program is called Life on the Edge. And I share with them some of the historic eruptions here. And I've got some black and white photos of visitors standing in their exact position, uh, viewing these, this incredible awe. And, uh, and then I walk them through the most recent events that made uh, national and international news in 2018 when the volcano erupted, destroying over 700 homes. But in the process, it created 875 new acres of island. So it sort of shows how in Hawaii, the volcanoes are a force of both destruction and creation. And I think that duality is just woven into the whole nature of the national park and, and for Hawaiian culture that they see that. So that'll be a chunk of my day. And then part of my day, I'll be at the visitor center answering questions um, as visitors come in, you know, here we get to wear the big uh, ranger flat hat and full uniform. And uh, so folks know that you're the one to come up and ask questions on. And then later on in the day, I'll be an- returning uh, a lot of emails and answering questions. And these might be from school teachers. Sometimes I'll do, um, I'll teach college classes through uh, the internet, uh, especially if they just want a guest lecturer to come in and talk about conservation biology and protecting endangered species and why that matters. So any average day is sort of a combination of all those. And what's um, the bits of your role that you enjoy the most? So that's that's kind of a difficult question to answer because um, I like so many of the different components that I was, if I was only doing one, I don't think I would really appreciate it. Uh, we talked earlier about when visitors are coming from other places around the world and they're seeing this. In some ways, I get to see Hawaii through their eyes. And I love that sense of awe and wonder. Uh, We use a technique here. um, It's actually a magician's term. It's called casting the spell, where we talk to people about why something is really special. There's a tree here, and it's a Hawaiian endemic. It's only found in Hawaii, no place else on planet Earth. It can grow in barren lava. Um, It can close its stomata at times of volcanic eruptions. So the tree literally holds its breath. Um, During earthquakes, it sends out aerial roots, so if the tree falls over, it takes hold in the lava and grows up again. It's like something a science fiction writer would come up with. And there's one blooming right here, and all the cameras come out, Helen. Everybody is taking pictures of the beautiful red flowers and this native Hawaiian tree. Never mind that we walked past four of them on the way here, but that sense of awe and wonder as you're casting the spell Um, I just love seeing that, absolutely. And then if you can also weave in some of the Hawaiian mo'olelo, these are traditional stories that might be related to that tree. And as you weave those stories together, you'll connect with the audience on so many different levels. That's a good day at the park. That's that's probably one of the highlights. Uh, I I can imagine that the visitors that um, have have the pleasure of, of visiting the National Park and meeting you, having an, an amazing time. Um, we're, we're doing a lot of work here in Snowdonia at the minute to engage with visitors, um, to talk, you know, encourage visitors to learn more about the area and what, and what makes it special. Um, but also, you know, we've been having quite a few challenges in general with, with how people treat the National Park with litter and fly camping and that sort of thing. Um, are there any challenges that you have in in Hawaii Volcano National Park? Are there any messages that, that you'd like to, to get across? Yes, as an island ecosystem, we are really vulnerable to introduced invasive species. So island, when I was studying island biogeography, it's the same story around the globe. Remote island archipelagos, the only way for species to arrive is by the three arrival mechanisms of wind, water and wings. So many of these island ecosystems become the kingdom of the birds. They develop into a really fine-tuned, finely balanced ecological system with extreme biodiversity, really, really beautiful. But unfortunately, they're vulnerable. 
So as people come to visit those ecosystems, if they're bringing in weeds on their boots and on their shoes, and if they're bringing in, they wanted to try to smuggle in flowers or something from home, not realizing that that species, you know, just within the park, Helen, we have seven distinct ecological zones. That means if something gets brought here from somewhere else, it can take hold. And because of the low competition and empty ecological niches, many of the native endemic plants and species can't compete with something that's coming from a highly aggressive ecosystem. So we've seen much of the park damaged by people introducing non-native species. And, and we're taking a lesson from Aotearoa from New Zealand because they've been battling the same issues for a long time. And we think doing programs like you and I are doing today and doing similar programs with New Zealand, we've learned so much from them to say, oh, boot scrubbing stations work really well. Oh, letting people know before they come that this is something important if you want to protect Hawaii. And then in terms of uh, litter, like you mentioned, I, I've never been able to comprehend why anyone would come to a place of incredible natural beauty and throw trash out the window. It just doesn't make any sense to me. But we do see it and we try to remind people um, the importance of this. We also weave into our ranger programs, leave no trace principles. That means as you're walking along the trail, you're not breaking off branches and ripping bark off trees. And, and I do have to stop some programs to mostly to talk to the parents <laughs> as their children are running around. Um, and also in Hawaiian culture, it's considered very disrespectful to take rocks uh, as souvenirs away from the islands because that's part of Hawaii. That, that tells the story. Um, here in Hawaii, the land is not just the land, it's the aina. Uh, the aina is that which feeds, that which provides. So tourists taking that home as a souvenir is really disrespectful. So I let people know that on my programs, but I don't single them out. I let them know ahead of time. I say, you may be tempted, but um, yeah, I, I, had, <laughs> I had one young boy and he said, I heard the national parks belong to everyone. And I said, yes. And he said, well, I'm everyone. So I'd like to take this rock home. I said, wow, that kid's going to be a lawyer. And his parents were, were there standing next to him. And uh, I said, yes, but my role is the protector. I'm the protector of the land. I have to protect this so that future generations can come see that rock. And then his parents said, if you leave it here, Ranger Dean will protect it so that when you come back, you can see your rock. And he thought that was okay, and he dropped it down there. So, <laughs> so that's so just, lovely. <laughs> yeah, those are just some of the challenges we face, and, and also volume of visitors. We have to realistically look at how many visitors can we allow for daily use and not negatively impact the resource, so that you know we're not following what we're supposed to be doing. Yeah, there's some really important messages there, isn't there? And, and I and I really like the way that you're, you're obviously trying to kind of engage with people in a positive way to, to get those across. Like you say, you know, people people just don't want to be told what to do and, and they never respond well to that, do they? But responding to kind of engaging and encouraging and educating always always seems to be much more effective. Um, I, I think we're running out of time. Um, okay. It's been such a an amazing pleasure to speak to you. Um, I've I've got a, a picture in my mind of the National Park. Um, I hope one day that uh, I'll be able to make it over because it sounds absolutely incredible. Um, good luck with the rest of the year uh, and all the great work that you're doing in educating visitors in the National Park. Uh, and hopefully we'll speak soon. Thank, Thank you. you so much, Helen. It's been a pleasure. My final guest, Chris Patton, is a content manager at South Africa National Parks. Uh, in our pre-chat from the podcast, we've had some really interesting discussions uh, and he's incredibly knowledgeable about all things South Africa National Parks. So, Chris, thanks so much for chatting to us today. It's really lovely to meet you. Um, I think we'll get stuck in um, straight away. Can you tell us a bit about the setup of national parks in South Africa? Sure, Helen. Nice to have the opportunity to chat to you and your listeners. Um, yeah, so South Africa has got a long history of national parks. Um, Kruger, which I think we're going to talk ab about um, just now, was actually first proclaimed 
as uh, the Sabi Games of in 1898. So it's already celebrated its centenary um, back in 98. It only changed its name to Kruger in 1926. So it's going to have another centenary in a couple of years. Um, but uh, basically in the country, we've got um, around about 20 national parks um, spread all over the country in all different uh, types of habitat and all different kinds of parks. Some of them are large uh, protected wilderness areas. Um, which are sort of free of human habitation, but others are on, on the urban fringe and have um, uh, cities like Cape Town is on the, on the fringe of Table Mountain National Park. Um, yeah, so a whole diversity to um, conserve a representative sample of South Africa's biodiversity. And um, yeah, the, the people coming to South Africa, they probably have uh, the sort of idea of the archetypal African safari and, uh, you know, a park like Kruger um, gives them that. But there's also parks in sort of arid areas, semi-desert, uh, in uh, lakes and forests and mountainous regions. Um, yeah, so a real diversity of habitats and, and we, depending on our time, we can we can go and touch on a number of those parks. And in terms of the structure of national parks in South Africa, uh, you know, just comparing to the United Kingdom here, we we kind of call ourselves a family of national parks where we're all sort of in, independent national parks. Um, but we kind of work work together quite regularly. Um, and I sense, understand the structure slightly different in South Africa. I think so. We've we've got a head, head office in Pretoria, um, the sort of capital city, and it's sort of. Uh, regulates all the parks that sort of report back back to them, um, and our parks are divided up into, uh, for business purposes, into various re uh, regions. Kruger National Park, because it's so big and so established and has so much infrastructure, uh, stands on its own. But we've got our um, Cape Parks down in the southwestern uh, portion of the country in the Western Cape Province, which include Table Mountain National Park, West Coast National Park, Gallus, Bontebok, and Tankwakuru National Parks. Uh, then as you move further east into the Eastern Cape, you've got the Frontier Parks, which are Addo Elephant, um, Mountain Zebra, Camdebu, and Karoo National Park. Uh, then there's where I'm talking to you from on the Southern Cape Coast of South Africa, um, Garden Route National Park, which comprises of um, the Wilderness Lakes, Nisna Estuary, uh, Titicama National Park, and the uh, Nisna Forests. Um, then moving up to the sort of northwest uh, portion of the country, which is an arid semi-desert, you've got your arid parks, which are Kalahari Transfrontier Park, uh, I.I. Richtersfeld Transfrontier Park, Akrabi's Falls, National Park, Makala National Park, and uh, there's one more um, that I've left out in the Makwa National Park, which is wonderful for its blanket of flowers in, in our uh, springtime. And then finally, we've got the Northern Parks, which are um, Marakele National Park, um, Golden Gate Highlands National Park in the sort of um, uh, mountains on the border of Lesotho. And then the one we're going to talk about that has got Welsh connections, the Mapungubwe National Park, uh, on the confluence of the Limpopo and Shashay rivers where Botswana, Zimbabwe and South Africa meet. Wow, sounds like you've got your work cut out for you there. They, they sound like incredibly varied national parks. Um, before we kind of go into that a bit more, I'm, I'm just intrigued, you know, obviously the last year and a half has been... Um, pretty bonkers for everybody around the world really you know how's the pandemic affected you in the national parks quite severely um in a number of ways obviously for a period when we were in total lockdown there was no people coming to the park and our parks rely very heavily on tourism um for uh, a substantial form of revenue and i think that that's probably quite different to, to parks in the United Kingdom where we have um, in a park like Kruger, you've got a number of rest camps in the park um, 
and uh, all different types of sort of uh, tourism infrastructure there. And people travel to the park, not just local South Africans, but a lot of international tourists. Um, and that sort of global sh shutdown has really hit, hit us hard um, and will continue for, for a, a period. So it really has impacted very heavily on our revenue stream. So the National Park um, essentially relies on income from kind of, I guess, tour guiding and that sort of thing from, from visitors in order to operate. Is that right? That's right, but also from uh, staying in, in our accommodation. So, um, I mean, if a person travels to, to Wales um, to sort of visit Snowdonia, they probably would, would stay in accommodation in one of the, the local uh, towns or, or cities. But we've got our accommodation within the parks, within the rest camps, which are sort of uh, fenced off uh, safe areas within a park like Kruger, where there's a lot of and macro animals uh, that are sort of um, potentially harmful to humans so they just can't stay out in in the sort of wilderness sections they've got to stay within the sort of designated accommodation in the rest camps and and then do activities um, things like night drives or guided walks or mountain bike trails um, those are things that um, you know, also gener generate revenue for, for the parks. So there's a whole um, sort of funding mechanism. We also do get um, support for, from um, uh, our government, um, but, um, and from a number of concessions uh, that we've got within all the parks. But um, yeah, tourism is, is incredibly important for the survival of the parks and without people being able to travel and uh, not just the sort of local people, but also the international guests. Um, it's really having a, a detrimental effect on our on our finances. Well, that's really interesting, Chris. And like you say, the the setup slightly different in um, the UK, where we get the majority of our funding from uh, government. Um, so for Welsh national parks, it comes from Welsh government, and but we do get you know quite a chunk of money from revenue from things like car parking uh, from our visitor centers sort of sales of, of produce and stuff there um, but it yeah it sounds like you know those challenges are, are even bigger for you guys um tell me a bit about yourself about um the work you do about your background cool well uh, like we said in our pre-chat i was actually born in bangor um, and you got all excited because you were born in Bangor too, but um, yeah. I was born in the town Bangor in Northern Ireland um, and not the city in Northern Wales. Um, yeah, so I spent the early years of my life in, in uh, Northern Ireland, um, so I have a sort of affinity to the United Kingdom and, and a fair bit about uh, the conservation efforts over there. I've been interested in sort of wildlife um, all my life. And um, I guess for many sort of wildlife enthusiasts living in the UK, it's always a lament that a lot of the wildlife that used to be there um, has all been disappeared. Um, things like wolves and, and bears and, and wild boar. Um, and coming out to South Africa, as I did uh, as an 11-year-old, being in a country where you've just got this plethora of of amazing wildlife in parks like Kruger uh, was just wonderful. It was something um, that I was really keen on. And when I went to university, I studied environmental sciences um, with the idea that ultimately I'd be working in the sort of conservation industry. Um, then I had, uh, when I was at university, I fell off Table Mountain, which ironically is one of our parks. Um, and ended up in a wheelchair. Um, so um, that sort of kind of changed um, my sort of life story a, a bit. Um, but one thing led to another. I did um, some uh, a research thesis um, working with national parks. And when I finished my studies, I managed to, to get a job working for national parks. And... Um, yeah, here I am 23 years later. Um, I've worked in various different divisions across um, the organization and, and done work at some stage in all 19 parks. 
I formerly lived in, in Kruger Park, uh, worked at head office for many, many years, and uh, now I'm down in Garden Route National Park. And you, and you talked a bit about, you know, uh, before before we started the, started recording about the connections with Wales and South Africa and a botanist called Ichtid Paul Evans. Tell us a bit more about that, the connection there. Well, he was um, a botanist who did his studies over there in Wales and then came out to South Africa. It didn't only do work in South Africa. Um, uh, I think he did sort of uh, botanic work all the all the way up through Africa, but um, he developed a real curiosity and interest in the northern part of South Africa um, on the uh, southern banks of the Limpopo River, um, just across the border from uh, what was then known as, as Rhodesia and uh, Bechuana land, now modern day Botswana and Zimbabwe. And he lived um, and worked in Pretoria and um, got to know um, the president of South Africa at the time, President Smuts, um, young Christian Smuts quite well, and they uh, became firm friends. And um, he managed to influence the president that that northern part of the country was so important from a botanic point of view that it should be proclaimed as South Africa's first botanic reserve, which it was sometime in the 1920s. And it existed for um, 10 or so years. Um, but because of um, politics and the fact that it was very good agricultural land, uh, it was deep proclaimed and turned into farmland um, for um, the uh, farming community that, that farmed along the, the Limpopo River and also because of its strategic um, location was also a sort of a military zone as well. So for 60, 70 years it was not under formal pro uh, protection and then in the 1990s it was re-proclaimed as a national because in the meantime, in the 1930s, they discovered these archaeological ruins there of this uh, human settlement um, that had been in a place called Mapungubwe, which is now a World Heritage Site. Uh, it was one of Africa's oldest human settlements long before the colonial era and European settlers came uh, to Africa. Um, there was a rich African community uh, trading with the Arabs um, and uh, they've uncovered a lot of uh, gold artifacts and beads and pottery and that sort of thing. So quite a sort of well-established um, uh, civilization that was a precursor to the Great Zimbabwe ruins that um, are one of the sort of uh, heritage sites in, in that part of, part of the world, a little further to the north. Um, yeah, so it's just interesting that a, a Welsh guy uh, influenced the original conservation effort of that park in, in this part of the world, and many years later is now a World Heritage Site and a national park in this country. Mapungubwe is its name. Yeah, I, I love the fact that there's that um, Welsh connection. It's, it's really lovely to hear. And uh, but there sounds like there's been some kind of challenging stages in the in the history of development as well. And just kind of zooming forward to today, then we talked a bit about the pandemic and, and how that's impacted you. It kind of in general terms, um, what would you say is the, the more challenging parts of looking after your national parks? Well, I think a big thing in South Africa, because of its um, its. Um, controversial political history and for many years um, black South Africans were excluded from the parks. One of the biggest challenges we have as an organization is to make sure the parks are the pride and joy of all South Africans. Whereas for many years um, your white population in South Africa um, would embrace parks and, and travel to them. Um, we now have a huge challenge to make sure that all people um, value the importance of conservation and the importance of supporting the park. Um, but because in some instances um, people were displaced from the park, um, 
that's a huge issue, particularly in a park like Kruger, where there was a, a num- um, there's a number of land claims and, and efforts to um, provide restitution and restore, um, if not um, settlement rights in the park, some form of economic value from the fact that they're um, your ancestors, or in some cases, um, your your direct descendants were were removed from the park. So that's one of the, uh, the sort of challenges um, that we've we've got. Um, but yeah, and that probably goes um, in conservation bodies all around the world to try and get the bulk of the population to appreciate the value of conservation and, and what natural heritage, how important it is to to a country, um, and to get everyone aware of what their um, their various habitats and biodiversities in those countries represent and how they um, how they are of value and something that needs to be embraced and cherished. Yeah, and, and I think what you were saying early on there, you know, about um, the challenges of, of making sure that everybody feels like national parks are for them. Um, you know, dis- despite the fact that we've not got the same sort of exact historical challenges as yourselves I think people have definitely seen national parks in the UK in the past as a you know a place for kind of middle class white people Uh, and and that is something that we're we're all still working to try and kind of shift really in terms of people thinking that that national parks are for for them or for everybody so that's really interesting to hear and what about the kind of what are the most rewarding parts of of your job my job's pretty diverse in terms of, of kind of the stuff that I do, but we just love trying to interpret our parks for for people to provide meaning to their experience in visiting the parks, so telling stories. Um, and I sort of mentioned earlier that um, when I was at u- university, I um, did my degree in environmental sciences but I also um, during the course of my, my thing did a degree in, in English so my intention then was to become an environmental journalist so I'm able to use these two background skills to sort of tell stories and um, try and communicate um, better um, sort of various um, stories and, and tales and um, tremendous information that exists in all the parks. So, I mean, we just don't have time today to go into um, detail on all the parks, and they've all got their own amazing histories and biodiversities and, and stories, and each one is worth visiting in their own in their own right. Um, so, you know, people sitting there in, in Wales wanting an African adventure, hopefully one day um, we'll conquer... Um, things around uh, this uh, pandemic and people will be able to travel internationally again and find that South Africa is a safe and and um, relatively economically um, cheap um, destination to come out. Um, I know uh, with your colleague, uh, we were talking earlier about the British Lions being here at the moment and the fact that the fans can't come out with them is a bit of a bit of a travesty, um, and uh, yeah, hopefully the world will return to normal um, in the years ahead. Um, yeah, but it's quite quite sad and scary at the moment. Certainly is, and I think you know it's it's just reminded us what these national parks do for us. You know, when you when you do have the opportunity to get out there, it, you know, when you haven't been for so long, you realise, wow, you know, this this is what what it's all about. Um, I'm going to sneak in two questions before we finish. One is um, a a personal one of mine that I'm just interested in uh, that you might be able to answer. And the second one is probably going to be quite hard for you to answer. So the first one is uh, you mentioned Table Mountain. Now, people are always saying to me uh, or always kind of making a statement that that Snowdon or Redwithfar, which is the highest mountain in, in Wales, is the busiest mountain in the world. And I, I'm not sure if that's true. So Snowden has uh, over 600,000 visitors a year. It's incredibly busy. 
but I'm sure I read somewhere that Table Mountain had more visitors than that. Do you know how many visitors uh, go to Table Mountain every year? I don't have the stats in front of me, but I think there's about um, at least double that that visit Table Mountain in a year. I know um, when uh, probably about over a decade ago, uh, there was quite a big noise because Kruger had over a million visitors in, in a year. Um, and yet it's not the most visited park in the country. The most visited park is Table Mountain. People pass through um, Cape Town and the mountain just sort of dominates uh, the horizon. And most of the locals, um, they might go up there on sort of walking trails, but the sort of cable station that they they use to go up to the top is mostly um, used by foreign, foreign visitors. Um, but yeah, it, um, I'm pretty sure Table Mountain is the most uh, visited mountain in the world. Excellent. That's great to know. <laughs> um, and then uh, the second question or the final question I've got, which is a really tricky one um, for anybody who works in, lo in national parks and loves national parks to answer. Uh, do you have a favourite place? Look, I've got several that I'm I'm really fond of. Um, I'll give you I'll give you three, Chris, Max. <laughs> and it's really heavily in, in, influenced because one of my real passions is uh, ornithology and birding. So um, I'm really sort of fond of, of places that have a, amazing bird life. And that Mapungubwe National Park that we spoke of um, earlier um, is an incredible birding venue because you've got um you're in the you're in the tropics there so tropical uh, habitats are just sort of so much more rich in, in diversity than in more temperate climates uh, but you're also in the floodplain of the limpopo river so it becomes like a swampland um at certain times of the year and you get all these sort of uh, water birds uh, that move into the area it's usually quite an arid area and they sort of move in so it's a park that's very transient and it's in its conditions but it's also got with the sort of um rocky habitat and the amazing botanic diversity that we spoke about how uh mr paul evans was able to um uh, persuade was of, of national importance so there's an incredible diversity there um the same pretty much stands for the northern parts of kruger um, most visitors who come out to Kruger, they want to see the sort of big five um, and your typical African safari animals. So they go down to the southern reaches of the park, which are in Thornfelt, um, and there's a lot more infrastructure there. But the far north of the park in the Pofuri and Pundamaria regions is also sort of in the tropics, has this major river, also Limpopo. So it's a little further east than Mapungubwe, which is in the west. Um, and um incredible uh, bird diversity and then i've got to um sort of plumb for sort of my current current park down here in in garden route there's one or two spots uh down here that are just sort of um beautiful you're on the sort of indian ocean um and i mean just to look out of my, my window and look at the sort of um nice and heads which is this inlet inlet it's sort of an estuary of the Nizan river which flows out into the ocean but it's an, an incredibly striking uh, landmark you'll have to google it when we finish chatting and just get an idea of sort of how beautiful it, it is so i'd choose those three as my sort of three favorite spots in, in national parks they sound incredible and you've done an amazing job of, of painting a picture uh, of those for us so I'll, I'll definitely be on google in a minute um, Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you and good luck uh, with the rest of the year. I hope the challenges of COVID uh, don't last too long for you. You're obviously in an incredible part of the world and um, hopefully one day uh, we'll be able to visit. It's been great speaking to you. Speak soon. Ah, thank you. Well, look forward to having you.
thank you to all my guests from this month's podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to them. And what's been the most interesting is really the striking similarities between the various national parks around the world. You know, from managing visitors, engaging and educating people who visit the areas to encouraging people who don't see national parks is for them to come and visit and experience these incredibly special areas. But most of all, the passion that comes across from our colleagues who work in these national parks from around the world. It's been so lovely to speak to them and so lovely to hear that passion coming through. Our next podcast is going to be hosted by Lori, our digital communications officer. She's going to be talking on the Welsh topic of which in English might be about one of Britain's breathing spaces or how we talk about Snowdonia as one of Britain's breathing spaces. This was a term that was used quite a lot in the past to describe our national parks as places to come and, and get peace and quiet and take a breath. So she'll be looking at is already still one of Britain's breathing spaces and, and how has um, the huge increase in, in visitor numbers impacted that. The second part of our special series on national parks from around the world is going to be broadcast in August. So I'm sure you're looking forward to that one already. Thank you so much for listening. Please share if you enjoy the podcast and send us your comments on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.